we're thrilled to be back with another episode after a few weeks off. During this time, we've been working behind the scenes to improve the podcast. We're amazed by the rapid growth of our group and its global reach. Additionally, we've noticed that most of our listeners don't follow us on Spotify. We'd like to propose a deal. If you could kindly hit the subscribe button, we'll tirelessly pursue our mission of bringing you inspiring stories and insights from esteemed guests in the world of food. Your support means a lot to us and will help us expand our team and bring in incredible guests to the podcast. That's all we're asking for. Thank you a lot. For now, we welcome you back to another fascinating episode of Tomorrow's Bites. Today, we have the privilege of delving into the inspiring journey of Corian van der Berg, a true visionary in the world of food technology. Meet Corian van der Berg, the co-founder of Revive, on a determined quest to transform ingredient production. With a strong research background, he has advanced in his mission by progressing through renowned institutions like the TNO. In this episode, we unravel the story of his discovery, his unwavering commitment to sustainable nutrition solutions, and his vision for a future where ecological footprint and nourishment coexist harmoniously. Get ready for a truly inspiring story. So, without further ado, I am Andres Antondura. And I am Shaco van Kool. And this is Tomorrow's Bites. Goyan, thank you for coming. My first question is, what mission are you on and why is this relevant for you and maybe for our listeners? The mission uh, that we have is really to uh, produce the most sustainable food ingredients out there um, using what is now considered waste materials. So upcycling raw materials into the most sustainable ingredients out there. And to be more a bit more precise, actually, we, we want to aim uh, in, in, um, in replacing is actually egg white. So using what is now considered a waste material, upcycle it, and then in the same time, replace egg white. Uh, and thus, yeah, contributing to the, to the plant-based uh, transition that we are in. Really interesting. When we do the introduction, we always like to go to the really, really beginning. So can you tell us how your childhood made the person and the professional that you are today? Well, I don't think my, my very early childhood is so interesting to talk about because I don't think the average listener is interested in, in hearing about boogers and diapers. But I think uh, one of the more uh, interesting aspects of my youth is when I discovered punk rock music. And I came from a, a bit more conservative uh, Christian town uh, near uh, Wageningen, where we are now founded, which is called Veenendaal. And um, I eventually discovered punk music, and I found out that there's these groups within punk that, um, that are actually uh, vegan and were thinking about um, animal rights and activism. And, you know, in secondary high school, I've never heard of those things in, in my hometown. And so that was a bit of an eye-opener to me that, that, that there's people thinking about it, like veganism and animal rights. And, you know, in the end, it, I never became a vegan because I found it a bit of a hassle uh, back then. Uh, but then, uh, you know, they, they did make me think about, you know, the contribution of a food system uh, to, you know, the overall planet welfare. 
And so actually one of the big important parts of my youth is actually discovering punk music and all its, well, maybe a bit more extreme subgenres that it has. And so eventually I went uh, then to, uh, to university and uh, studied food technology, biotechnology. And uh, yeah, you, 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 do, you never forget about your, your roots. Uh, I still listen to punk rock music, but you always like, ah, these, you know, these vegans, these animal rights people, ah, you know, they are right. And, uh, and, and when, when I became a bit more bored with all the academic work I was doing, I was like, okay, let's try to make a little bit of a difference here in the world. Let's see if we can change the, the food system for the better. So this is, I think, uh, let's say, a, a, an important part of my youth that, that still translates to some of the work that I'm doing nowadays. It's actually the pivotal moment that uh, shaped your path, right? Yeah, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a pivotal moment. We can talk uh, for hours on punk rock music and hardcore music uh, if you uh, want to make another episode, but uh, <laughs> let's stick to the food transition for now, I guess. Uh, but in, in, these, uh, in your youth, where does the interest in food start? Yeah, so my, uh, my, my real interest in food um, actually started after my secondary school. So I was quite good in, uh, in chemistry and biology and uh, mathematics. So I started studying um, laboratory science and eventually I had to pick a, a specialization. And the honest answer was that, that food science was the least worst specialization. Um, and so I, I finished my, my, uh, my applied science degree and I decided, okay, I, I need to leave the food tech space because I don't want to be... Uh, I don't want to work in a QA lab for a food technology company. It sounds boring to me. So I, I, I started studying something else. I started studying biotech because that really excited me. And so I kind of forgot about the whole food tech thing for a couple of years and, and went full on in, in fermentation science and, and, and industrial biotechnology. And again, eventually I got bored with that again. And then I realized, well, you know, the most important thing that I could work on if I want to make an impact. It's actually the food system again. And so I started reading up on it again, and then I got, I got truly interested in, in, in the whole uh, food tech space. And uh, here we are, 10 years later, 15 years, 15 years later. Uh, a very, very interesting journey, actually, basically, and it's where you didn't have thought about it before. Um, but what inspired and gave you the confidence to pursue eventually the entrepreneur? field um, and in this specific field actually instead of being the scientist for, for the first part of my let's say career I was always a scientist and uh, you know I graduated from Wageningen University in uh, biotechnology uh, I got a bi biotechnology degree did a PhD in uh, in biotechnology and chemical engineering so again again science then I did a postdoc in Delft University on biofuels and fermentation again more science then went to, uh, to, uh, to Corbion and to TNO, more science. So eventually I, uh, I got a bit bored. And at, um, I think at the end of my scientific career, I was an assistant professor in uh, Wageningen University. And I kind of realized that I don't want to keep doing this for, uh, for the next 30 years. This is not going to be the career path that I will really enjoy. And, and so I started thinking about really setting up a company and uh, just to make a 
a true meaningful impact because we, I was publishing all the time and nobody really cared about the publications. It's like, you know, a couple of PhD students, they are citing your papers and you're like, is this the reason why I'm getting up in the morning to get a couple of citations from PhD students? No, that's not, that's not why I'm doing this. Additionally, I also realized I'm a bit more, I'm too applied in terms of my interests. They are too applied for to be, uh, let's say, uh, a famous or uh, be a scientist that has a lot of impact. And so I realized, okay, I don't think maybe my real strengths are here and also my interests. I like to talk to customers more. I like to be a bit more commercial than the average scientist. And I realized this and then... At the same time, I, I, had a, I had the pleasure of supervising uh, a PhD student at, uh, at Wageningen University, and he was an absolutely brilliant, uh, brilliant guy. And so we were always trying, you know, uh, you know, is this a good idea to set up a company or run a startup? And I would come up with some sort of idea, and then he would do some calculations the next week, and then he would tell me, no, this is the dumbest idea ever because of <laughs> these, these reasons. But you know what? I think I have some ideas about how it could work. So then he would propose some idea to me again, and then I would start doing uh, calculations and basically killing his idea again, you know? And then it went back and forth a couple of years, and eventually we end up with uh, with an idea that we couldn't kill. We both couldn't kill. We're like, ah, yeah, this actually works, you know? This should work. And so we validated it, we tested it in the lab, and yes, it worked. And so then, then you start thinking, okay, what if we scale this up to a factory? What what would it look like? And then you're like, okay, this could be actually profitable as well, which is something you don't really encounter that often at, at university, that you come up with some sort of profitable uh, idea. And, um, and so we started playing around with the idea a little bit more. And so, you know, we, back at that, in, back in uh, 2015 to 2019, I was working on microalgae. So the whole idea was working on microalgae, using that and to make ingredients out of it. But we did realize this, this might not be the very best starting point of a, of a, of a startup because microalgae are expensive. There's a lot of technical issues associated with, uh, with microalgae. So we need something else. So the technology could work, but we are just using the wrong raw material. And so we decided to use another one, yeast. So we started using yeast as the raw material. We basically run our process, and I can tell a little bit more about it later. We made the ingredients, and to our surprise, it again worked. And when I saw that it worked, then I knew that was the, the, the very important moment. I knew I need to leave academia, and I need to pursue this. And so then... A couple of months later, I talked to my boss and we both agreed like, okay, Coram, you know, it's nice that, that you're around, but uh, let's, let's, uh, I'll, I would like to let you go and, and you can go and pursue your entrepreneurial dream. And so I did. And then together with uh, Edgar Suarez Garcia, my former PhD student that I had the pleasure of supervising, we set up Fumi Ingredients in, uh, in 2019. And uh, yeah, I've been growing ever since. Well, this is a super great story of how uh, business, like the, an arena story that is, I think, super inspiring. And I could see really in my head like this uh, debate that you were having isn't like a movie thing, actually, probably because the, the, the way that you told the story. It was, it was really, uh, when I saw that the trick also worked on, on yeast, that was for me the moment that I realized I, uh, I need to quit and I need to pursue this. 
this is too big, this is too important to not work on. And I and, and I did realize at the time, like if we are for whatever reason it doesn't work, you know, then then we'll just find another job in I don't know half a year or a year down the road. It's not like it's it's a it's a, a super weird risk that we were both taking. We both highly qualified guys. You know, you can find a job, but this is what we wanted to do. And so it was a very calculated risk that we took. I think that is really nice what you're talking because you're actually talking about the reasons why to pursue this. But a lot of times developing a novel and impactful process or ingredient uh, has significant challenges. And mainly because people and, and businesses, investors are a lot of times hesitant uh, to embrace a change or to accept like a novelty. How do you tackle these obstacles? Like when you start a company, you, you have no idea like what kind of challenges you in the end will be facing. And if you would know this, I think then maybe even more people would say, no, <laughs> this is not for me. I'll just stick to just working for a regular company. Now, in the past, when we started up, uh, we, we, had a, we had so many challenges that we were facing. I think the biggest challenge that you have as a startup is you have no money. Right. So you have a great idea in your mind and you want to prove a lot of things that it could actually work, but there is no money. So how do you go about it? So what we did was, uh, yeah, just trying to scrape the barrel, uh, basically financially. So you start doing all these startup competitions and, uh, well, with some luck, you actually win some. So we won, I think in the end, we won like 20 or 30,000 euros, something like this, which was which is a substantial amount. But again, if you think about salaries and you know a lot of running costs that you already start to have, it's not a lot. And so if you then also want to prove a biotechnology food process, then you actually realize it's not even a lot. It's basically nothing. So what we then did was we decided, you know, we're going to go and buy all the equipment from Alibaba. And um, I think this is a, one of the best choices we ever made. Just going to Alibaba and buying filters and dryers and mixers and you name it, buying it there. And so we built our whole pilot plant for about 20K. And uh, that is, that is, you know, you can go a long way with, with, with that. And, and so we, we, we tackled the first urgent issue, which was uh, like the real financials at a super, super early stage. Then we found some investors when they saw, hey, these guys actually have a pilot plant and it looks promising. They seem to know what they're, what they're doing. So we got a loan and we got some investors on board. And then the, the ball starts rolling a little bit. So then you are not just a two-man show anymore. You can start hiring some employees. Uh, we, got, uh, yeah, we got to know some corporate partners that we are still working with. So again, more credibility and you start scaling up. Yeah? And so then... What, what happened was we were able to scale up a process of a couple of grams of product that we were able to make in the lab to, I think now it's about, well, several hundred kilos per batch in three years' time. And it doesn't really sound dramatic, but it means basically a 10,000-fold of scale-up in three years' time. And so the biggest challenge right now is not more on the technology side. I think we have kind of, kind of, I mean, Let's, let's see in, until the real factory is operational. But I think we kind of uh, solved that. I think the, the big challenge now is externally, so not internally, but externally, and getting, as you were saying, 
uh, getting the external companies interested in your ingredient and letting them incorporating it in new products. And so that's why we now have a bigger sales team and we are working with a lot of companies to try to get our ingredient incorporated. But it's not easy because all these companies had their standard recipes for years. And now you're basically asking them to change the recipe, change the whole process because you have this magic ingredient, right? So that is a very slow and painful process. So these, you know, you need to work on the relationship with all these customers. It takes a long, long time. And that is the big challenge right now. I completely understand. I think the previous guest, Caruela, also have this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, I can totally relate. Totally relate. Yeah, for sure. Um, I find it really interesting that you're looking into yeast, uh, using yeast. Um, what were actually your first thoughts about using yeast? My first thoughts about using yeast, it was really, um, so you need to know we came from microalgae and a little bit of technical uh, information about microalgae. I think most of us know it's green, right? And a typical microalgae and it's a small cell. It's a couple of microns. And what we do is basically we take this cell and imagine it's like popping a balloon. Right, all these cells, we pop them like balloons. So all the proteins that are found inside, they are released. And what we then do is we have a set of unit operations and we do some fractionation and some drying. Now, big challenge with microalgae is you start off with green material. So if you start fractionating it, you will always end up with green ingredients. So that was a huge problem because people tend to say, I oh, you know microalgae, it's the future, it's sustainable. But if you talk then to the customers, they say, yeah, it's fine that it's sustainable and so healthy, but I don't want my cupcakes to become green. Nobody wants green mayonnaise. And by the way, my meat replacer, I prefer to have it brown or reddish instead of green. Yeah? And so when I started working with yeast instead of microalgae, we were suddenly able to produce whitish, yeah, off-white, yellowish ingredients. And then suddenly everybody was like, oh, yeah, this works. This is something I can incorporate in, in my recipes. So that was for me the first thought, like, oh, wow, we can actually produce something that customers would be interested in. And, and so we originally, I think the biggest first purchase that we made with some of the grants that we won was actually buying baker's yeast from a local mill in Wageningen. And we bought like 100 kilos of baker's yeast in, um, from that mill. Um, and, and so we started working with baker's yeast. And yes, it all worked also on our, on our Alibaba pilot. Uh, but then later on, um, a large brewer came to us and they said, hey, you know what? Actually, the yeast that you are using, you're using baker's yeast. But you know what is actually a huge problem in the brewery industry? Brewers spend yeast. Now, basically, it's all fed to the pigs. So do you want to do something with it? And then we were like, of course, you know, if, if a large brewer comes to you and you're with the two people, then your answer is obviously yes. Yes, we want to do something with it. And yes. We will be able to solve all your problems. And so we started working with Brewer Spent Yeast instead of Baker's Yeast. And so that, that is the process that we have been scaling up uh, since uh, early 2020. Yeah. C can you actually uh, elaborate a little bit on, on the process from the start of the sourcing of the ingredient until how your ingredients can be valuable for many products in, like in, in the final uh, product like for the customer? This uh, starts at the brewery so you have uh, of course you you brew your beer let's not get into the details yeah? so but your main product is of course uh, the beer 
but in your beer brewers uh, process, you also co-produce a lot of other materials. I think the most well-known one is brewer spent grain, and this is also the biggest side stream. There's also quite some startups working on that, like making also a variety of ingredients or products. But we decided not to focus on the brewer spent grain. We focused on the brewer spent yeast. And this brewer spent yeast, how it leaves the brewery is basically, it's um, think of it as a big a bit of a yellowish sludge. It's thick beer, uh, but there's a lot of yeast in it. It's like 15% dry matter content. And this yeast is floating floating in beer. So the first thing you need to do is you need to get rid of all your beer. Okay? So once you have gotten rid of all the beer and all these beery flavors, then you end up with a more clean yeast. Yep. And, and this is really then the starting point of the rest of the, the process. So then we crack the cells. So all these products that we are looking for, they are all inside the cell. So we need to crack all these cells in, in the process. Once we have done that, we go through a series of solid liquid separations and we create two ingredients. We have a protein-rich ingredient and a fiber-rich ingredient. And then it goes uh, to a spray dryer and we make these yellowish powders of it. Now, these two ingredients that we produce, we, it's not like, uh, um, uh, they are not ingredients that just happen to be produced using this procedure. We made a very conscious decision to not go for, let's say, a protein concentrate or protein isolate. We wanted to go for something that is functional, so something that can gel really well and can make emulsions and can make foams. So instead of focusing on purity, we decided to focus on ingredients that have very good technical functionalities. And so if you then run the process in a, in a specific way, you will also end up with two ingredients that have very different functionalities. So one ingredient can be used to, for example, make mayonnaise, uh, to make uh, the mayonnaise to replace whole eggs in mayonnaise. The other one, which is more the fiber-rich one, you can use that to make small chicken pieces. Uh, so both ingredients have a different role to play in the food system. Very useful in the end. So it's such a broadly spectrum. We discussed the microorganisms and their significant potential. Um, however, when I bring this topic with my friends from my hometown and regarding their potential in the food industry, they tend to feel a bit, uh, well, apprehensive to give it a chance. So how could you convince them about the benefits of microorganisms in a way that they, they will be open to? So, you know, I, I, it's not my mission to convince your friends to start using these, uh, these ingredients. I think what is going to happen is that people will not even notice that our ingredients are used in a variety of products. And um, you, will, you will see the, the ingredient in, in, in some sort of ingredient list being yeast protein. This is how it's going to be on the ingredient list. And then you will find it in a plant-based product. So maybe in a vegan mayonnaise yeah, or a bakery product or a, or a fresh pasta. Yeah, you can say it's a fresh, fresh pasta, which is vegan. Will your, will your friends be opposed to that? I'm, I'm willing to guess they are not. 
because they will not even bother with looking at the at the ingredient label. There's only a very minor portion of people that are very obsessed with reading the labels. I'm not one of them, by the way, but there are a couple of people who are interested in and they tend to have you know, specific allergies. And then I completely understand if you're allergic to, to eggs or milk or to soy, then you need to be very careful there. But I think, and I don't know your friends, but I'm, go- I'm willing to guess that they are not um, obsessed with labels and reading them. And, and therefore, they will not probably even uh, bother with the fact that there is a little bit of yeast protein in there. It's going to be, it's not going to be a majority ingredient. It's going to be a couple of percent. And so we are not aiming to replace soy protein or something like this. No, it's, it's a very minor portion of, um, of the ingredients. Actually, if you think it anyway, that, the, I mean, this yeast already comes from being used in, in beer, no? Like we've been using microbes uh, even in a more function, like even a more life form of the, of the microbes uh, for the production of uh, food products for centuries. Uh, well, it's been part, yeah, it's, it's, hate yogurt do your friends hate beer probably yeah. not yeah <laughs> you know but so and, and and this is also a little bit of my dream it would be amazing if we can you if we can for example make uh, uh, the beer hamburger where we make some sort of vegan hamburger using the brewer's pen yeast and the brewer's pen grain and then you serve it on a festival and then you can proudly say this hamburger is made of beer i mean the masculinity is going to <laughs> exactly for football fans, uh, it, will, it will be. I, I, I can't make any strong statements here yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of, some of our ingredients will be served very soon near football matches. Oh, that would be so cool. But when we talk also about, because I think uh, an, another controversial part of the new ingredients, and a lot of times is if they can replicate the functionality of uh, the pro- no, the meat protein, for example, because for, it is known that uh, plant-based proteins, sometimes they have, or plant-based ingredients, for example, they have uh, problems with the bioavailability bio- that your body cannot uh, accept them in the same rate as they can do with, with meat, meat ingredients. So how can you give us a little do you have insights on how does it work for yeast protein so if you if you look at uh, digestibility yeah or the nutritional side of things then you are completely right eh? so a lot of plant-based proteins they are lacking some of the essential amino acids uh, and even though soy gets a bad rap typically it's actually a very good protein source eh? so it's quite uh, well balanced in terms of also amino acids uh, but there's plenty of legumes out there, for example, pea, that is really lacking in some of these essential amino acids. So it's a very, very valid point for some people that they are saying, uh, yes, you know, all these new meat replaces, they're not as nutritional or not as good as the real deal being meat. And, um, and so we did a look at, uh, we took a look at our amino acid profile and the digestibility, and we actually saw that all the amino acids are in there and it's in the well-balanced it has a so-called pdcas of one which is always the magic number that nutritionists are are looking for um, but we don't like to brag too much about it because these ingredients they tend to have a minority inclusion so only if you only add let's say five percent of our ingredients to the total product it will not have a major impact on the overall nutritional quality of the the final product it will help a little bit 
but it's not the unique uh, selling point uh, that we always want to talk about, which is texture. It's it's amazing that your journey and discovery for your passion to create a business in the end, uh, to actually pursue your mission to create a better future. Um, how is the journey so far of being an entrepreneur? It's um, it's a ro- yeah, it's a cliche, but it's a roller coaster, <laughs> and it's uh, yeah, it you know sometimes you do wonder like why the hell did I do this? Uh, but it's um, it's it's quite like with kidding aside, it's quite it takes uh, it's quite demanding, and and then also. From a mental point of view, it's uh, it's uh, demanding because there's now quite some people working at the company, and and you know you need to, they're looking at you and, and trusting that you will make sure that the company will survive, yeah, and that you will bring the funding, and that in the end everything will be all right. Well, in fact, you're running a startup and everything is shaky, and you're all inventing new things for the first time, and you don't know how it's going to be in in half a year. So that brings quite some stress and some 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 pressure to to the founders, um, and so it has a lot of ups pluses. Being you know you have a lot of freedom, you can do whatever the hell you want. You think is right. You don't need to listen to some sort of boss who uh, tells you you need to do this, this, and this. Now you can make the shots, but it also brings pressure and um, and stress, and um, yeah. That's that's really something you should consider when you uh, are going to set up a company. It's not going to be uh, fantastic all the time. There's going to be periods where things are not working or you're almost out of money or uh, customers are not willing to uh, to work with you or I don't know what. And then you need to fix it. Nobody else is going to fix it. And so that's something that a lot of young entrepreneurs don't really realize that down the road, Things will become very tough, and um, yeah, it has again ups and downs. That's how it goes. Describe a, a perfect leader for an entrepreneurial field. I think there's a um, there's no such thing as a perfect leader for for startups. I think there is a good leader for every stage of the startup. For example, a founder is not necessarily the best leader uh, of uh, of a large startup. This founder could perhaps be, you know, fantastic in getting, um, let's say, a, a product tested and and validated to lab and pilot, but running a factory and 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 um, being part of a management team and thinking about the board, yeah, that's a completely different type of skill set, and that's something you need to realize as a founder that you know eventually my role might be played out this is also something what i realized early this year and so i started fumi ingredients as as uh, the the co-founder and i was the ceo back then and and then you start scaling up and and you know you become bigger and bigger and you you start thinking about building factories and there's engineers and there's commercial people and then you start realizing okay am i now really still the best guy for the job then I realized, no, I don't think I am. And so what we did early this year, we got a new CEO. And so this guy, he came from AB InBev, has a lot of industrial uh, experience, 
So he can do these things in the stage where we are right now much, much better than I can. And, and so I'm super happy to have him on board as the CEO to get things properly organized and really prepare for this factory that we are going to build. So then as a scientist, uh, you know, that's, it's not my, uh, not my expertise to build factories and, and run them and getting them in operational excellence and in all those things. That's not my expertise, but also not my interest. And I set up Fumi Ingredients because I thought it was going to be fun. I wanted a little bit more fun in my life, you know? And then, um, then you realize, okay, I'm not the expert. I don't think I like running factories, so I need to step down. So I stepped down and now I have a different role within Revive to really now look at more the innovation side of things. So thinking about, okay, brewer's yeast is fine. We're doing this right now, but what else is out there? So basically going back a little bit to my scientific or to my science roots, see how we can also use the technology on other microbes. And I like this much better than the CEO, as being a CEO, sorry. Oh, fair points. I was wondering, you, you gave already some tips uh, to, to, to entrepreneurs or people that are thinking about being an entrepreneur. But if you look to yourself, to your younger self at that moment, when you find out, okay, this has the potential, what is the one thing that you said, wait, Korya, consider this first? Yeah, the, the thing I considered first was that, wait, I thought this before. I thought this in 2016 as well. And I had a spirulina startup. And I thought this is going to change everything back then. And, um, and then I found out, oh, wait, scaling up an alternative protein startup it's not so easy um so that is the thing i was like okay no wait hold your horses don't get too excited let's do some de-risking first before you get overly excited over something that's not going to work out in the end so that i'm having a a startup that was not so successful i think that that was the thing that came to mind like okay you're now enthusiastic fine uh, but let's do some de-risking first before we go head over heels into the next uh, startup venture. And now going from the past to the future, thinking about the years to come, what is one big goal you really want to achieve? Even even if it sounds crazy, because um, in the end, ambition is so striking that uh, some people cannot really <laughs> see like what it's happening in our minds and like the goals that we have. Uh, so my... Um, there, there's two, two big goals that I have. One is getting this first commercial plant operational. And that means producing about 2,000 tons of ingredients. And these 2,000 tons, oh geez, I'm not going to go and do the math on the spot, but it will basically represent several millions of eggs that don't have to be produced every year. I think it's about maybe 100 million eggs actually per year that don't have to be produced for ingredients. Yeah, so that's the first goal. Second goal is to apply this technology not just to one factory, but to lots of factories. I want a lot of these type of factories in the world because in the end, you make an impact by building factories, not just by fancy papers and, and talks and going to conferences and you know presenting all these fancy ideas. No, you need factories to make an, uh, to make an actual impact. And, and I want to have a lot of factories running on, on, uh, on baker's yeast and, and brewer's yeast. 
but my actual goal is then also to get this technology applied to other microbes. So microalgae, but also, and this is the next big thing that's going to happen in maybe 10 years from now, is a thing called precision fermentation. And precision fermentation is something, is a technology, it's a biotechnology um, tool where you produce biologically identical ingredients, such as, for example, ovalbumin or whey proteins or gelatin. And you use that in, you make those ingredients in a bioreactor using microbes. But just like brewing, uh, brewing beer, in those type of technologies, you also produce a lot of byproduct, a lot of spent biomass. And in order for those technologies to scale, you need to also valorize the biomass that is co-produced in those processes. And so I want our technology to also be applied to those technologies. So I think this technology will, will be implemented in a variety of food industries and making the overall food system way, way, way more sustainable. That's the dream. I'm actually curious about other innovative solutions that deeply resonate with you and that you think will bring, well, about positive changes. I'm, I'm, I'm personally, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about, about precision fermentation. So this is for me the, the long-term technology that, 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 that will make a, a big impact. And, uh, and what you now see is that bigger companies are stepping in. So, for example, there is now uh, a joint venture from DSM and Fonterra, Vivici, and they basically combine forces to make whey proteins and a lot of other milk proteins using precision fermentation. So if companies like that, a big milk processing company and a big industrial biotechnology company, start working together, forming a joint venture to make this technology work, then you know it's going to be serious. And so that is uh, something I'm very enthusiastic about in terms of uh, uh, biotechnology. Um, what I also really like is, um, is the whole upcycling uh, story. So I, I'm still waiting for good technology on brewer spent grain. There's a lot of brewer spent grain companies out there, and some of them are scaling up, but it's, it's hard. It's a struggle because it, it's... Uh, you need to process it very quickly. but So there are some technical challenges, but this is going to work out. Uh, and finally, uh, I'm very enthusiastic about just processing more new legumes. So think of, for example, fava bean or mung beans, and basically fractionating that in various processes or various ingredients and make functional pro uh, proteins from that. Those are the big three pillars that I am personally very uh, enthusiastic about. I have to say, Korean. Uh, you must be the fourth, fifth guest that already mentions the precise the process fermentation. But let's not kid ourselves. This is not stuff that's going to be implemented in a couple of years. Eh? This will take a long, long time, and it will be a very painful process. So before this stuff reaches full commercial scale, it will be ten years. You know, I understand, but in some way, I and because I also see it in in Nicodin, I think that in general. It seems like the whole food industry seems to be like really uh, holding for this innovation to come. Uh, in some way, it reminds me to a little, but, well, in that moment, I was not part of the food industry, but I know it from being later, The what happened with the lab meat, you know, that the, the first moment that it appeared at lab meat, uh, it was crazy what it could happen. And, and, and 
now the lab meat seems to be something that can be a little bit more mainstream in the sense that now the general public is familiar, have heard about it in, in the States, it's now legal, whatever. But now it seems like that this new thing that seems like it's going to rock uh, the food industry in uh, yeah in a long time. I, I don't I don't dare to to give dates or anything. Uh, seems to be the precision fermentation. Uh, I, I'm I I think I was not as excited uh, about it until I heard so many people talking about it. Yeah. So I I, I so I'm quite well aware of the whole uh, lab meat situation. I'm a bit skeptical about it because I think it's too complex. Um, precision fermentation is also complex, but it is, this is gut feeling, more manageable in terms of complexity. And um, yeah, so that's, that, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm coming from. It is slightly more complex. So what you now see, if you look at the whole fermentation business, you see a lot of companies scaling up. I think last week you had... Uh, you had uh, the company Enough announcing uh, another investment round. So they're building factories. But this is wholesale biomass. So it's kind of like growing baker cheese or growing wholesale fungi. Slightly more complex is then the precision fermentation. So you need slightly different bioreactors. You need a little bit more complex downstream processing. And then one step further and even more complex, yeah, then is, of course, the lab-grown meat. And... Uh, yeah, it's to be seen how cost competitive they can be. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, looking already to, to our time and everything, I think we're definitely reaching the end of the podcast. But we always have a couple of closing questions that we like to do. And actually, our, our, I always call it a, our favorite question is, since this is a food innovation podcast and what brings us here is food, we would like to know what is your favorite food or food product? You know, it's that the question is as open as you want. Oh, this is very painful what you're now asking me. My favorite, it, it depends on the occasion, eh? but if I have to be very honest, uh, here we go. Okay, it's actually uh, licorice, dropjes. That's my, it's my advice. I, it's, I, there's nothing I can do about it. Here, it's out in the open now. Here we are. <laughs> really, really Dutch, as far as I know, no? It's, yeah, it's not something I'm proud of, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. I know, I, know, I know more Dutch people that, that are quite uh, enthusiastic about the Trophies. Somehow it doesn't, the enthusiasm doesn't seem to cross the border. But <laughs> <laughs> Another question. Uh, overall, before... And before closing the podcast, where can our guests find more about Revive? Uh, is this a moment to do your promotion, Korean? So. Ooh, a promotion. Uh, you can find us at uh, revive.bio, but make sure you write Revive with a Y and not an I. Um, so there's a lot more information there. Uh, if you have personal questions, you can uh, write me on, on uh, Korean at uh, revive.bio. Uh, on the website, you can find a lot of uh, information about you know, the type of product you can apply it in, but also some, some more information on the technology. Um, yeah. I want to thank you for everything, your time, your work already. And we wish you all the best in the future. Not only you, but also your team. I mean, this mission and the products that you're creating, I think it's, uh, it's going to make a big impact and an impact that we need. Thank you, Korean. Have a, have a nice night.
It was an absolute pleasure, guys. Thank you very much for having me.